was that was it his interest in golf that kind of got you deeper into it or were you already like well into uh obsession before he came along well that's a good you know i i've been golfing my whole life like my dad got me kind of into golf when i was fuck, how old was i like maybe seven or eight you know like i was also a hockey player then too so <clears throat> i um it was just sort of natural you know like you play hockey and you're go to the driving range in the summer it's a very similar movement too so yeah. i picked up on it quite quickly and um, at the time i was playing hockey with a few of my friends and their dad actually owned a golf course i don't know if you remember the golden west golf course like it was sort of in between edmonton and st albert like north east or no sorry northwest at side of the city oh and yeah like, yeah yeah and it wasn't like a super good golf course or anything like that it was pretty cheap and whatever but my friends owned it so we were just able to go out and you know play on the driving range or go play you know 18 holes like whenever kind of we wanted which was kind of cool and um and that was actually the place that i had my first job too like i was the guy on the driving range like picking golf balls off the driving range um so yeah i've been doing it for a long time and i i can't say that i was like obsessed with it at the beginning i i liked the challenge a lot and i got quite good at it at a young age but it was never anything that i wanted to like pursue and like take really really seriously i just I like that I could play good golf and, you know, play 10 rounds a year or something. I was pretty happy with that. So, but I had a few, you know, jobs in the golf industry for a while. Like, you know, I worked at the Mayfair when I was 18, um, like uh, just polishing uh, clubs for members and doing stuff like that, which, and I love that job too. So I've been around it a lot, but um, I really started to get much more into it when my son was born. Uh, one of the first things that he really liked to do um, was to go to the driving range. So when he was about two, two and a half years old, you know, I got a bucket of balls at the Victoria driving range and he just went crazy. And, you know, at the time I just wanted him to kind of like, like swinging the club and having a good time doing it. And it's pretty much been for him an obsession ever since, like he's been golfing since he was two and a half years old, you know, like the first time I went out to play 18 holes with him i think he was only four you know so yeah he's this is like kind of part of who he is now and he really wants to excel at it which is really cool so and it's just gotten me more into it because i i by default just play a lot of golf with him which is really great so i'm not complaining it's great that's amazing uh yeah it's kind of surprising like when i was younger I know my my dad and his brothers, they were really into golf and they were also really into fishing. And I yeah, remember as a kid, I didn't understand it at all. Like even even when I was that young, I just thought like, why would you like wake up early to either fish or golf? I don't get it. And now that I'm older, I'm, I totally understand like, I get like what a release that would be and how relaxing it was. And I yep. totally understand like why they were so infatuated with it, but it took me like 30 years to figure it out. It sounds like yep. your son's got it already figured out. Yeah. he's It's great. Like there's, you know, there's not a lot of things you can do in life where you spend like more than a few hours with someone at any given time. Right. So yeah. Like, you know, when you play 18 holes, like even if you're playing at a pretty good pace on any given course, like you got to consider other golfers and stuff like you're playing for 
four plus hours, right? So it's a really great way to connect with people, family members, friends, just to kind of be together and do stuff. Cause you know, like in our world that we live in now, everything's like focused around immediacy and like, you know, it's almost like people need to have more hours in the day to do everything they want. But, you know, human connection gets kind of lost in a lot of the, the, the busyness of that. Right. So the golf course or fishing or whatever is just great, great way to kind of like just spend real time with people, you know? And, um, you know, golf is cool too. Cause like it, it just, it, it appeals to a, a very broad audience. Like you can be a crappy golfer and have a great time playing with a PGA pro. Like it's like no big deal, you know, which is really cool. So. Yeah. That that's actually a super interesting way to look at it. Not, not a lot of sports would have like, is good entertainment value for all levels of skill. I never really thought oh, about it that way. Yeah, like it's it's just like the guy who is just starting out who's finding it really, really challenging is out there hacking away and loving it. And then there's a the guy like, you know, my kid or like some people that I know who are really good golfers who are like, you know, dialed in, like they've been doing this their whole lives, right? And they're just, they're they're finding it just as exciting but in their own way. Right. And they could even be playing together on the same hole. It's crazy. Right. It's very cool. So it, it's kind of a theme on here lately. Actually, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to a bunch of people who do a ton of different things. And I, I can never really like pinpoint what I would say they do the most of and i guess Mm -hmm. you're you're a very similar one what like if i was you know to describe you like let's say i was trying to say like you know title this this episode what would you say is your your main draw like are you a dj or a golfer or a thrifter Oh man, that's a funny, that's a very, very good question. And I was, I was thinking you might ask me something like this and I was trying to, I was thinking, I'm like, how do I describe kind of like what I do? Cause I, you're right. I do a lot of different things, you know, like I've been DJing for like over 20 years now. So the first time I ever did that was like way back when I was 17 years old, you know? And so for a long time, that was all I really wanted to do. That was like a huge part of my life. Um, And then you know, that there's, there's so many different phases of that part of my life. And then I have like, you know, my, my golf stuff, which I'm really, really interested in. And the thrifting stuff is like a big, big part of my life too, which it's been a big part of my life for a long time. But just in the last few years, I've started to make it something a little bit more too, um, you know, which takes up part of my time too. But then I also do, um, you know, investment advice and portfolio management at, TD Wealth with my family and one of my very good friends who, and that's a very big part of my life too. And I've been working in that industry for, I think I got my 16 year um, anniversary, like token or whatever it is. They give you some stock and TD shares. Um, So I've been working there for a very long time. And um, you know, the work I do in that industry is it's, it's a different level of, you know, it's, it's just a very high level of banking. So it, it, it really stretches my mind in a different way than like, you know, sitting in a studio and listening to music or DJing at the club or even doing what I do in the thrift shop. But, you know, a lot of the skills that I do 
with my banking stuff relate to what I do with everything else too. So it is, it all kind of works together. But I, I, if I was to tell you like what kind of hat I wear or what my title would be like creative director of a lot of different things, I guess, you know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah it's, I uh, always, that's, that's a tough I one. feel bad asking people to sum it up. Cause like, I, I would rather you and everyone else. I asked that question to, I wish like they didn't have to state which one they were. I just, at yeah. first, when I would ask people that question, I thought it was kind of corny. And then I realized like it actually is kind of lately it's dictating like the, the more unique guests I can get, those are the people who kind of bring that question up. So I realized yeah. it, it's actually a question I really like asking. And the answer yeah. is, is always different. Like some people you know really like don't want to be known as a bunch of stuff some people it's interesting to watch them like kind of calculate in their mind like how many (laughs) things they're actually doing and yeah because you know man honestly like i i just kind of like keep my head down and plug away at things that i'm interested in you know what i mean and like i've always kind of been like that too and i don't i don't ever think about like you know what i'm going to put on a business card or like how to kind of you know sell it to someone or whatever i just kind of go with what i want to pursue you know um and so yeah it's 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 just interesting how like you know trying to think about like how do i package that and like explain it It, it's really quite difficult right because yeah i guess i wear a lot of hats yeah what was it like uh like when you were younger because uh like you said, you've you've been involved in investment banking for a while, but you were also yeah. DJing back then. So yeah, was it well, the, always as as manageable to do all of them, or was it harder no. when you were younger? Well, I used well when I was younger, I did a lot more DJing than I do now. Like I now, the only real kind of um, solid gig that I have is once a month, and that's quite flexible too. Like at Bauer, and I do you know, I do one night there at, at Bauer, but I, I would say before I was doing, you know, a couple nights a week at different venues and all this kind of stuff all over Western Canada at one point, you know, and at that time I wasn't honestly really taking the banking too seriously. Um, it was, it was a job and it was something that I was interested in, but it was also something that I was really like, um, I had a really hard time for the first few years understanding the language and getting into the industry and like you know trying to work my way into becoming that type of person too you know like more of a professional not like a guy who is you know a dj in a in a club and you know that kind of thing it was the the, the two lives were completely separate and and in a lot of ways i try to keep them separate still like a lot of people who come to see me dj have no idea that i do what i do with banking stuff they have no clue you know and i i kind of like that there are some people who who do know you know there is a little bit of overlap but then also with like the the thrifting stuff and like big guy supply like a lot of the people that i associate with with those things have no idea that i even dj at the club <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah it, it's 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 interesting and i, I kind of like having them separate like that too because i don't know i just i like it that way so yeah, no, the, these days, like, it's kind of rare, like, to not 
have all of your business out there, whether whether you want it to be or not, like with social media and stuff. It's like that info for most people is is more like readily available. So it must yeah. be nice that you actually can harbor some sort of like secretive lifestyle. Like uh, like there's a lot of people out there that just like and this is not a, a judgment on anybody. It's just a kind of a, an observation. How about that? Like there's a lot of pe- people who um, I, f- I feel like you you need to show out everything to kind of have some kind of like clout or something like the more things on yeah. your resume, it's like that's what people feel as though they need to show. And I don't know if that's like a great thing. You know what I mean? I think that there's 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 something to be said about keeping it mysterious, maybe a little bit, you know, like I, I don't want to be an open book either. I really don't like I I just want to continue doing what I do and kind of go about it the way I do. And I don't need everybody to know about it, to be totally honest with you. Like, you know, like I, I think I could be a much bigger DJ and or a bigger thrifter or bigger, whatever, if I actually promoted it. And I, I don't really care to do that. Cause I actually just like the, like, I like the act of DJing and I don't, I do it for myself. Really. I don't really do it for other people. And the same thing with thrifting. Like I, I just really like enjoy finding things. Like I love treasure hunting. It's great, you know, but I don't do, I just do that for me. And then I kind of just figure it out. Well, maybe make a business out of it because I'm half decent at it. Maybe, I don't know, you know, and then with the banking stuff, it took me a long time to feel like I was really, really good at what I do. And um, yeah, like I just try, I try to keep that stuff to myself. I don't need validation from people. I don't need, um, <clears throat> I don't need any of that to keep on going. In fact, I think a lot of that stuff is actually massive distraction for, for people who are doing things is, you know, that other side. Right. So I've been very aware of that stuff from the beginning and I think it'll always be like that for me too. You know, so. You, uh, I was talking to, to Rob Clark about this and I feel you, it'll probably resonate with you as well. Cause when you were first, you know, promoting yourself as, let's say, a DJ, there yeah. there was no social media. So, no, nothing. Like there weren't there weren't even digital cameras. You know, like I remember the first few raves I pl- I played at or anything like that. Like it, there was none of that stuff. There was maybe a well, there was an there was a message board where you could find out about these events and things, but like a lot of it was just kind of being out there and doing these things in in the flesh you know so and i and when i was listening to rob's uh talk with you i was just like wow you know it really brought me back to that time and how kind of um i don't want to say pure because it sounds kind of corny but like how innocent it was you know and like now it's kind of like it's just it's a different playing field and i don't know if we're ever going to get back to that that point of innocence with you know, the early years of DJing, but I'm yeah, an old guy, I, so. I constantly talk to like uh, older friends I have and younger people too. And all the younger people seem to subscribe to this idea that it's impossible to promote anything without social media. And yeah. I always try to explain to them, like there were so many people here before us that did exactly that like there you yeah know, co- companies were built there were like look at red star is is way older than any social media is they 
made it out of that time with just like word of mouth and you know if yeah. you had a good bar people would go to it and the it's like i'm speaking a different language these kids yeah. they like refuse to believe that, that that's possible yeah it's like the lens of the of the social media allows you to kind of like pick and choose what you want to do before you actually go and experience it you know like i remember i like when i was 18 or how 16 or whenever i started going to clubs like i you you know you'd go and experience these things for yourself and then you'd make a judgment on it you know what i mean like oh i went to that place and like the music wasn't very good so i'm not gonna go back right but now you don't even need to enter the building to make a judgment on like what's there it, they can it, it can be something as stupid as the place having a, a logo that you don't like the look of or something like <laughs> it's unbelievable <laughs> the things that you know our barriers to entry these days you know yeah i uh i can't remember if i actually said this to rob or no one but i feel it's almost like it's more harmful these days because exactly like you're saying people aren't going to a place to find out like firsthand if they like it or not even like restaurants or whatever, yeah. people can look it up first and then decide if they like it without even going there. But a lot of that stuff is so, in my opinion, it's so ripe for manipulation and, you know, oh God, like, why is a, you know, um, like a, a Yelp thread about how good a restaurant is, is like, like, how is that, you know, helpful? I, I don't know. I think it's helpful because yeah, there's some people who maybe give you know, honest testimonials or whatever. But then again, like that stuff, I, you got to be like, where's the source of these, these testimonials? Like, I think, I just think that that, that if you leave everything up to like somebody else telling you what your experience might be, <laughs> I think you're just missing the point of life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Like, so, fuck, man. I don't know. I don't mean to swear, but like, ugh, it just dri it drives me crazy. So, yeah. And it's interesting, too. I was thinking about that, you know, you know how the you say the younger generations say that you need social media to promote yourself and to be top yeah. of mind and all this kind of stuff. Right. But like from what I remember, the parties were way crazier back in the day yeah. without any of that stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like I haven't seen that that energy and that kind of like vibrance really since that time. And I don't know. I like as, as good as social media is about getting the information out there. I also think it really hinders people from having that real human experience with, you know, a, an event or a venue or a DJ or a, a, a band or whatever. And that's kind of sad. Yeah, it definitely is. I, I don't know, like how far it will go before people like want to revert. I know like some people kind of reminisce about how it used to be or some people like even the younger kids hear about how it used to be and yeah. kind of romanticize that. But like, I, I don't know if they can ever go back to even like some semblance of how it was. It, it just might be like totally lost on the new generation and even yeah, though people like say they want it differently i don't know if they actually do when it comes down to it yeah i think it's the technology's made people way too comfortable and people don't like to change when they're comfortable yeah, unfortunately no. you know and that's just how it is like 
it's it's interesting like my my um like i used to be very you know into the 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 djing and the music especially particularly house music disco funk and even techno and stuff like that those type of scenes yeah and um i haven't um other than going to places like you know bower and the smaller venues like that where you get you get a glimpse of that magic every once in a while you know if the if the conditions are right especially post pandemic it's a little different you know um people are a little bit less um inclined to kind of gather i think like on a general sense like being a sweaty club where you're like brushing up against people you don't know and all that kind of stuff i think generally speaking people aren't super hot on that yet i think they it might get to that point again but just from what I, I've seen, it hasn't hasn't changed, right? Or it's changed a lot. I mean, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, almost almost too much. I mean, the, the pandemic yeah. definitely yeah was a part yeah. of that, but I think it was all that stuff was kind of on its way out. Yeah, before that, yeah. which like I don't don't want to be like morbid or complain yeah. more than I have to, but no, no, you... no. yeah, no, I feel that too, man, for sure. You know, like I I just. I used to get really excited about like where things were going with electronic music in particular and like, you know, DJing and, you know, how the music was advancing and how the DJing and the technology was advancing. But now I'm just like, I'm just not super like, um, I just don't have that, that burning fire anymore. You know what I mean? Even though I'm, I don't think I'm going to like completely step away. I just think it's, you know, things are just changing for me. Like I said, I'm, I'm much more like stoked about golfing, <laughs> right? Than being in, in a club environment at this point, but that's just me. Is that that something that like could change later though, I guess, as you get yeah. older, people don't want to be in the club anymore. So the older you yeah. get, that might not change, but like maybe that like, something will kind of re-spark the interest and you'll like rekindle the flame for all that is that yeah, yeah, possible but, but, well totally for sure you know like i in the last year like i gave up doing my radio show which i did for i think 12 years on catch the beat on cjsr which is you know one of the longest running electronic music radio shows in the world and people don't actually know that it's been on the air since i think september of 1985 catch the beat same time same place same name the catch the beat was started by a guy named what was his name i can't remember but he used to run it'll come to me but he or he used to run a bunch of old record stores back in the day like uh there was like su records which was run out of the basement of where cgsr is right now actually used to be a record store um and then he also ran another place called groove asylum and um at the time he was actually bringing in a lot of like really cool um, Chicago house, New York house, New Jersey garage, um, like any of that kind of stuff, like all the American sounding um, electronic music that was happening in the late eighties and early nineties. He would be bringing this stuff into his, his shop at that time. So Edmonton actually back in that time was, um, you know, he was playing these records on the radio um, and we were very current with what was going on in the late 80s and early 90s with electronic music. And like I, at the time I was a child, but like, you know, through my record collecting and, you know, conversations and time in the DJ world and, you know, my radio show and all this stuff, I've, I've 
I learned a lot about the history of especially my radio show that I was doing. And it was just fascinating what I was finding out. And um, the coolest thing was like just realizing that, you know, the show that I had inherited from, um, you know, at the time, the person who passed it on to me was um, Cam Sound, who was a DJ here for a long time, ran a, a place called Kilohertz, which is um, underneath uh, Treehouse Records on, you know, just downtown. And and uh, so he was doing Catch the Beat for a long time. He took it over from Rob and uh, Trevor Spilt Milk. And I hadn't at the time, like I remember hearing Catch the Beat, like when I was a kid in junior high school. And like hearing electronic music for the first time, that's probably one of the first places I had ever heard house music or techno or whatever they were playing at the time. And, um, you know, it wasn't until I actually took the show over um, when I moved back to Edmonton in, I think, 2008 um, from Vancouver, where I was running a record label and I went to audio engineering school and all this kind of crap out there, um, where I was offered offered to take over the show and, um, you know, kind of got thrown into it and ended up doing it for 12 years you know so and in that time like learning a lot about the history of the show so and it goes back really far and the more you learn about it like you know catch the beat has a really special place in edmonton's heart for being a place where you know a lot of people heard electronic music for the first time and um the different hosts over the years really kept to the spirit of the show which is you know, not pop electronic music, but like underground, real, like rare electronic music of all forms, you know, and I was really happy to do that show for a long time, but uh, got a little bit burnt out during the pandemic because uh, we actually couldn't go into the studio to make our, our shows. So it made it a little bit more difficult to do. And at the time, I just was ready to kind of step away from it. So 12 yeah. years is, is an incredible run. Yeah, it is. And the thing is, like, I actually, there was one point where I was, you know, downloading all the shows and I have like, it's like five or 600 hours of me DJing on the radio. It's, un it's unbelievable. And that, that's like, that, that's not me playing like promoted music or, or stuff that, you know, a, a label will send me to play. Like, this is just all stuff from my own collection that I was playing. And at the end of, you know, the last five years of doing Catch the Beat, I actually started buying the records off the the person who was the first host of Catch the Beat. Like we, myself and Yuri and uh, Ian and a bunch of other collectors in Edmonton had a crack at a big, his big collection. Um, and that for, you know, the, the last part of my career DJing and, and also um, with uh, Catch the Beat really defined kind of my, my sound. And it was just, all these old 80s and 90s rare Detroit and New York and Chicago house tracks that like for some reason made their way to Edmonton, you know, and it happened to be through the guy who did catch the beat in the first place. Right. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. I, uh, I constantly hear from, uh, from people I just kind of pick their brain or people I've had on here talk about like how, up to date we were back then like it, yeah. it's crazy that like 20 30 years ago we were on par with what was happening and now i feel we're a little behind in in a lot of of subcultures yeah you know like the guy um oh, his name was al 
sorry, that's the guy's name. So Al was um, the first person to, in my opinion, from what I understand, I could be wrong, but he was the first person to really start bringing electronic music, like American electronic music and some of European stuff, like late 80s, early 90s into Edmonton. And at the time, like you really, like to think about that, like you really needed to know what was going on in New York to be able to buy Pal Joey records when they were first coming out or like, you know, any of those like, you know, Larry LeVan disco cuts and like all that kind of stuff. Like if you didn't know about that, you would never know about it. Right. So it's kind of fascinating that this Al person was like so in the know that he just knew what to sort of buy and how it all made its way here, you know? And then, um, you know, so, you know, fast forward 20 years into the future. And then I'm, I have a chance at like, buying these records that he was bringing into Edmonton that actually a lot of them never sold. You know what I mean? And so I was going through this collection buying, you know, these rare, super rare Chicago house and Detroit techno and house records that like, you know, you're never going to find sealed, you know, like it's almost like, you know, um, an iceberg is melting and there's like treasure inside of it. And I just happened to be there. You know what I mean? It's freaking crazy. And to find all those records here was even more crazy, right? So, yeah, and like I, you know, I, I have record collector friends and DJs from all over the world that I've I've known for a very long time, and like telling them this this story, they're just like fascinated. They're like, how did you even have an opportunity to buy those records? Basically, dead stock, you know. Like, it's just you you don't get that opportunity anywhere else, and especially in Edmonton, like Edmonton, Alberta. Like, really. You know, like so many people I've talked to that are from, you know, other places around the world are just like, how did that even happen? That's just like a crazy story. Right. So and then, you know, from that too, like uh, sorry to cut you back off, but like from that too, um, my record label that I started with a, a few different partners over the years, like it all spawned from the sounds and the things that I was being inspired by, like finding at that time. So yeah it's just it's interesting if you kind of like put it all together like that that's uh what i was gonna ask next what's uh what's the story behind your label what's the story behind the label so the the label i started the label i think it was in 2012 or 2013 and i initially started it with a friend of mine who was um a a co-host on catch the beat and so you know every week we would get together and we would go on Saturday from four to six and we would bring literally like pack a box of records, just like we were going to a gig. We'd show up at the station and we would just jam our records together. Like he'd mix, I'd mix. We'd talk about the records. We'd be inspired. We'd learn about new artists. We'd learn about new labels. We'd chat about it all on the radio and then we'd go on our way. Right. That was our, that was our weekly routine. And in and amongst that time, like, I just was, I I really wanted to kind of participate on the record label side because I felt like I, I had a bunch of friends and things who were producing lots of cool music at the time. And, but none of them could get record deals and, you know, everybody wanted to have a a record of their own out and all this kind of stuff. So initially I was kind of thinking, I'm like, how do I make this a thing? You know, like, okay, I got to get like, a few artists here to send me some music. So I got, you know, the process to get to even pressing the first record, it was probably like a year or two of planning, 
gathering all the assets, like meaning gathering all the, the artists and, you know, getting records put together. And I kind of figured, I'm like, the only way a little weird record label from Edmonton is going to be able to stand out or survive is if, you know, we have something substantial to kind of show a distributor, you know, like I was just like, this is the only way it's going to work. So we ended up actually putting together our first four releases fully, like almost as if like they were being pressed the next day, like full art, full promo run, you know, all the songs, you know, we got everything kind of like done so that we could literally like turnkey, send them to a pressing plant and have our records pressed. Right. And so I wasn't sure at the time that this strategy would work. I was just like, I kind of felt in my mind, like it was logical, like that, you know, which distributors, like they're not going to turn us away if A, the music's really good, which it was, or, and like, there's enough here that it's like, they know that we're fucking serious, right? Like we want to do four, four records. Like we're not just putting out one record and trying to see how it goes. Like we wanted to see, like, this is what we want to do. Yeah. And so, you know, we sent it out to a few of the bigger distributors at the time. There was Rush Hour, which is still a quite a large distributor for house and techno out of uh, the Netherlands. <clears throat> and then there was Clone, which is another dis- distribution company out of the Netherlands, which is very similar, but they kind of handle a bunch of different, like, kind of labels exclusively and whatnot. And then there was one from Chicago named Crosstalk, which they handled a lot of the cool labels that I had kind of been collecting already and you know right off the bat we sent the the email to all three of these different um distributors and i didn't think i'd hear anything back and within like half an hour they all got back to me (laughs) and i was like oh that's kind of cool you know like fuck like they're all interested like the the first thing they all said was like we really love the music we like the design and what do we need to do to sign you guys and i'm like okay So we got a little bit of leverage here. Like we got a few different groups interested, like how are we going to play this? Right. And so I kind of was like, well, you know, it wasn't a money thing. Like I'm not trying to grease people for money because it's like the music stuff for me has never been about that. It's just been about like putting out really interesting music, giving artists who would never have a voice otherwise an opportunity. And also, you know, putting like the design and how it all looks and the package of it all is very, very important to me too. So that was all like, like just what it's about. It's not about money. And like anybody who puts out records, they'll tell you it's not about, you don't make money doing records. Right. You know? And you, most people will tell you that you don't make money doing, or you don't make money doing music either. Like it's just, it's a very, very difficult way to do uh, as a career. Right. So for me, right off the bat, it was a passion project. That's plain and simple. You know, I just wanted to, have records of my own that I could add to my own collection because I was such an obsessive collector at the time. Um, so anyways, we got, you know, every, all these three distributors kind of get back to us right away. And I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, well, who do I want to align myself with? Like, do I want to be, if our box, you know, so if this distributor that we're getting into business with, if they're going to be sending our box of records to like a shop in New York or a shop in London, like, who do we want to be in that box of records with? Like what are the other artists that we want to kind of be associated with? And so like, I thought I'm like, you know, Chicago, the, you know, a lot of the stuff that Crosstalk was, was putting out was stuff from Chicago and New York and like all these really cool labels that like, I've just always loved. So I'm like, 
that's who we're going to go with. And it ended up being a pretty good deal for us. Like we had a, a P&D deal, which at the time was kind of unheard of for a very small new label, um, meaning that they fronted all the money and they pressed and distributed our records. And we didn't really need to put much into it, which was great. So, um, you know, they, they saw the potential and they kind of just like ran with it. Now we're not talking like tons of money or whatever. We're talking 500 copies of each record. And that's pretty much it. At the time, there was no streaming. There was no digital, nothing like that. We were just focused on putting out records. And, um, and all that stuff kind of came afterwards, which we can talk about later. Um, <clears throat> so we ended up getting on with Crosstalk and it was a good relationship for a while, but it ended up kind of not working out after a little while. The person who was our contact was a little shady and, you know, it didn't necessarily work out. So we ended up moving to a diff different distributor um, after probably three or four years of, you know, it wasn't like a bad experience, but it wasn't a good experience either. Yeah. Um, and at that time, my first partner in the label, who was the first, uh, one of the co-hosts of my Catch the Beat show, <clears throat> he ended up moving on to do other things. He just wanted to, uh, you know, do other things with his life. And at the time, another one of my artists on the label, who was also one of my, my very best friends, said, hey, like, I'd love to run the label with you. You know, like, let's collaborate and see what we can do here. So for the first four releases, it was me and my other partner. And then moving forward, it was myself and another person um, up until about two years ago. Now I just run heart to heart 100%. Um, and at that time, you know, we made a bunch of interesting signings, you know, like we initially started the label thinking that we were only going to release Canadian artists. And it worked out for a little while and I'm kind of glad we did, but you know, we branched out at about our, I think it was our eighth or ninth release. And we signed a guy from Australia named Subjoy. Now Subjoy, um, the song that he wrote. So the, the reason why we found this guy is that the person who is now my partner in the label, um, he, you know, listens to music on SoundCloud constantly and whatnot. And he came across the song that he was like, man, you got to hear this song, right? He's like, this needs to be on record. And it's like, it had already on SoundCloud about a million plays and it was unsigned. And, um, you know, the, the plays and stuff like that don't really matter to me too, too much. Like, I don't really give a shit about those type of datas like around music. Like I still try to listen to things like I do in a record store or if it resonates with my ears, then that's what I like. Right. So, you know, when that song kind of came across my, my desk, I was like, Oh my God. Like the first time I heard it, I'm like, this is like a classic house record. This is a classic house track. This is a song that, you know, will be remembered in the future as, as one of the top house records. Right. And I was certain of it. And um, so initially we signed the record we got a couple other of his tracks on it and put the record together. We got all the artwork done. Um, <clears throat> and it was a sweet package, put out 500 records. And we sold that, those 500 records in like, I think it was like a week. It was like instantaneous, like just gone. And this is, like I said, before streaming, before anything, it's like we were only selling records. And, um, and ever since that time, like that song now, like, you know, on Spotify has 3.7 million plays on Apple music. It's like three or 4 million plays. Like it gets on average about, and like, this is 
where the data and stuff gets really interesting. Like it gets just shy of a million plays a month. And those numbers are going up every month. Right. Which is crazy. So yeah, that's, that's, that, that's like our kind of our, our one record that has done very, very well. Um, why yeah, do you so think no cool. one, like, why do you think no one else signed them first? Like if, if... Well, it was, the, I'll, I'll tell you why the, so there's a sample in the record that this is part of the story that I probably should have prefaced with. <clears throat> there's a sample in that record that is owned by like a big record label. And initially we wanted to bootleg it. So we just wanted to put it out 500 copies on record done. You know what I mean? It happens all the time in electronic music. People don't clear samples, they all that shit. Right. And I thought, yeah, fuck, we can do this too. Right. Not thinking that, I just wanted to sell the records and be done with it. You know what I mean? I didn't think anything of like, you know, perpetual, you know, streaming revenue or anything like this. Right. And what happened was my partner made a little video, like a little teaser video of the track and, you know, like a 20 second clip of like a couple dancing or something like that. Right. And we just put it out like saying, Hey, this record's coming out. Um, You know, you know, just sort of like a little teaser. And we put it out on, I think it was on Facebook and like within like, I don't know, it seemed like half an hour, an hour, it had like 20,000 views. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? This is crazy. Right. And what happened with that is that the people who are the, the guys who made the original song heard it. Right. And they're like, we're going to send a cease and desist. You guys can't use this. We didn't authorize the sample, blah, 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 blah. And we had already pressed the record, right? Yeah. (laughs) So we had to delay the release of it. And luckily, like I had, you know, some lawyer friends and stuff like that that were helping us out kind of with the legal side of it, you know, and it costs a fuckload of money to get the sample cleared. Um, Because I just wanted to do it right. I was already in it for the manufacturing of the record and all that kind of stuff already. So I'm like, you know, a few little bit of extra money to clear the sample and make it right so that I don't have someone, you know, dropping a lawsuit on my ass like, you know, 10 years from now. That's that's what I, I had to do that. So it took about six months to get it all kind of, you know, aligned properly. But uh, I'm absolutely glad that I did. 100% glad that I did. If I didn't do that, like, it could be career ending. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's uh, like, I, it's, like I, I do believe that the bootlegs and the remixes and all that stuff is a very essential part of electronic music and its development. But nowadays, if you don't do that stuff right, uh, you could really put yourself at risk for um, someone coming to take what they think is theirs back. You know what I mean? Especially if you monetize things too, you know. Is that kind of what sets people off these days? Because I know the same thing in like clothing. Like if you do uh, like a funny little logo flip, no one will say anything. But then if the company catches wind that you might actually be making money off their logo, that's when yeah. they like send the season assist. Yeah, for sure. So, it's the same thing with music too. Like it depends on the artist though, too. Some artists, <clears throat> they will, they're almost like open source where they want you to take their, their material and they want you to create something new because they just, they're maybe they're 
cool with the creative process and they just want everybody to do that. You know what I mean? That's cool. But there's a lot of artists who are managed by massive labels that, you know, they want to audit every possible place in, in the paper trail where someone might be making money off of their, their content, you know? And um, I don't, I don't think that that's going to get any better in the future. I think that, you know, the technology for listening to whatever hits the internet is getting so high tech that you're going to have a really hard time um, kind of escaping that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I think, I think that it's, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you could kind of get away with releasing a bootleg here and there and do that. But like, I'm not sure about going forward, man. I don't know, you know? So I'm just glad that with this one particular song, which is really the only song I've released in the last 10 years that has any kind of sample in it whatsoever. Most, most stuff is like original compositions by electronic artists with heart to heart. Um, but this one was like an actual sample. So did yeah. the whole process of that like turn you off wanting to use samples going forward? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Cause if you think about it, like luckily this turn, this track is a hit. Like it, it just happened to be a hit, but how many songs out there do you, you know, go through the process to clear everything. And then it just is a total flop. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's expensive, man. Like I, I I'm thinking, I'm like, if, if it didn't work out, I would have, it might've just really derailed a lot of stuff for me because they put a lot of energy and emotion into that, especially at that time when all cylinders were kind of like firing with heart to heart, we were releasing two or three records every you know, six months or so. Like it was, we were going, you know. So, and like lately we haven't done anything. Like once the pandemic hit, you know, I just, yeah, we haven't, we haven't touched anything. We did 13 records in probably a four year span. And then, uh, yeah, just been focusing on everything else. I'm still running the label. Like I, I, I talked to, you know, I, a lot of it actually has to do with that one song is like, you know, collecting revenue from the song, paying my artist for his for his portion of the revenue paying out the people for um the the, the royalty of the sample um and there's just you generally doing like accounting for the label and stuff like that so and plus we just had a big problem with our distributor in london and we switched to a new one and all this kind of stuff so the, all this stuff that goes on behind the scenes when you know we're not even releasing a record at the moment <laughs> you know so when, yeah. when, when exactly was the, the last release from Hard to Heart? It was in 2018. We did a, a record for a Toronto producer named Raf Reza, which that record is, in my opinion, incredible. It's not even on Spotify or anything. I, we need to still get it uploaded to all those things. But um, yeah, that was in 2018. And after that, like my partner in the label, he... Um, he was working for a big tech company in, in the States and his work got a little bit too crazy. So he wanted to like kind of leave any kind of work with the label. So I've just been, you know, looking after it myself for the last few years. And I've put together a couple other records that I want to do, but um, you know, I'm not, I'm not in any rush to put them out firstly. And uh, I'm, I'm sort of strategizing with my, the new um, distribution company about some things that we can do to, you know, just, have some fun with the label going forward. So we'll see what happens. You know, we might not do anything, but we might do something, you know, <laughs> I guess be that, super big. That's one of the benefits of like, you haven't 
having a bunch of irons in the fire. You don't need to like rely 100% of your emotions on one thing. Like if you're gonna kind of take the label slowly and, and do what kind of presents itself, you have a ton of other stuff to get joy from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I've been really enjoying the, um, the thrift game and like, you know, like I, I run a little business called uh, big guy supply and uh, like thrifting and all that stuff has been a big part of my life for a very, very long time. And it brings me a lot of joy. And I also love just like, cause I'm a large guy. I'm like six foot eight, you know? Um, and, you know, at double extra large or extra large. So I just, I decided to start a little company where I basically find really cool thrifted clothes for people who are big like me, you know? And um, it's working out great. It's really fun. So, do you think it's uh, not easier, but because like it's probably more rare to even want something in that size? Do you find you find like better, kind of more sought after items because people might leave them on the shelves because they don't get them? that's possible for sure but the thing is nowadays there's so many people out there that are resellers like everybody's a reseller you know i see people in the thrifts like on a daily basis who like they're buying whatever they can because they know they can flip it you know yeah so like five plus years ago i think that there was a lot of stuff left over because of the sizing but now like if a really nice piece pops up and you're not there and you you just don't have happen to have the timing that day you're not going to get it it doesn't matter what size it is, you know, and Edmonton is very like, there's a lot of people doing it now because there's, you know, it's, it's actually a pretty fun hobby to do. And like, if you do it right, you can basically close yourself, clothe yourself for like nothing. You know what I mean? And maybe make a little bit of money on the side if that's what you're into. Right. So yeah, yeah it's been like oh go ahead sorry. maybe maybe oversaturation isn't the best word for it but with like that the prevalence of thrifting and how like it, it's much more common thing these days does yeah. that is that positive or negative to you that's a tough question i think that overall it's a real positive thing because you know i I would rather people go buy stuff at the thrift store or trade things that they find at the thrift store to other stuff or make a little bit of money from the thrift store because, you know, you can if you know what you're looking for. Uh, Rather than going to the mall with a big wad of cash in your pocket and cherry picking all the cool colors and latest fashions from all the stuff that you're just going to give away. You know, like I I, I just, I don't really agree with that. that sort of uh, style of consumerism anymore. <clears throat> so I think that even though there is more people doing it and it is, it is tougher for me to find stuff. Um, I also rely on my skill in that sense. And I, I don't, I don't think that the competition necessarily hurts me in any way too. Um, I, I just think that there's enough, like there's really truly enough recycled clothing out there for everybody. Even if, 10,000 times more people get into it. I don't think we'll be able to keep up with the endless amount of shit that people give away, especially here. People are incredibly wasteful. Like we live in a, in a world, especially in Alberta where the, there we have a, a huge amount of mass affluent who live here and the mass affluent love to shop at the mall and the mass affluent love to give their shit to value village or to Goodwill. They do. They love it. It's like they, 
they, they love it so they can go buy more stuff. Right. And there is the, the amount of recycled clothing out there is shocking. It's shocking. People don't realize how much is out there. So yeah, I think um, it is oversaturated, but there's still room for more for sure. In my opinion, hundred percent. Were you thrifting when you uh, lived in Vancouver? A little bit. Yeah. When I was in Vancouver, I actually, the first thing I ever found at a thrift shop that like blew my mind was like this, like $500 backpack one day. I just happened to be in value village. It was maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And I found this backpack and it just like, it was, I had this epiphanal moment where I was like, how is this even here? You know, how someone donated this, like, this is here and I bought it for like $15 or something. And it just, it's ever since that moment, it just made me realize that like, we live in a world where people have way too much stuff. And especially being a Canadian, like this is crazy. So you can find everything you could ever possibly want at the thrift shop if you're patient, you know, and you know where to look. So yeah, it really changed. Like I, I, I wouldn't say at the time I was hardcore into thrifting when I was in Vancouver, like in the mid two thousands. Um, but I got really into it when I moved back to Edmonton. Yeah. Do you, you ever regret like maybe uh, you've kind of turned some taller guys onto the thrift game and now that's eating into your funds? <laughs> yeah. You know what? Honestly, I, th- I think so. But, you know, when it comes down to it, like anybody who's really, t- I don't want to say talented at thrifting, but anybody who has sharper skills in the thrift store, meaning you, you kind of understand, you know, what has value and what's, you know what people are looking for what is cool or even nostalgic stuff like old old fashions from the 90s which is like the stuff i'm really into um developing those skills is actually quite tough so even though there's maybe new people who are going into the thrifts like i feel like in order to get to the level of kind of uh skill level of just sort of you know going through there and picking out good things that you see like I, I i just think it takes a little bit of time to do that so i wouldn't i'm not too worried you know and i like i i'd say that i still find just as much stuff as i ever have um so the supply is still there and there aren't actually that many big guys around <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of an outlier so <laughs> there's a lot of smaller guys but there's not that many six eight giants out there you know unless you play for the stingers or the oilers or something i don't know are you uh, looking for things in all sizes? Like, if it's not big, will you still get it? Just with the logic of like flipping it or trading into a different size, friend. Sometimes, but I don't know. Just my my style is like, if I go into a thrift shop, I just want to be kind of in and out, you know. So that's kind of how big guy supply started. Is like I just started amassing a lot of stuff that I was sort of just buying for myself. You know, and I'm like, man, I got all these extra larges and, you know, double XLs of like Harley tees and old Tommy Hilfiger stuff and Prada stuff and Gucci things and like all kinds of stuff. Right. And then, you know, I was selling a lot of stuff to from another um, when I don't know, do you, there, there's a there's a few guys that used to work there, like Gary and all those guys. Like I used to love going into from another and like chatting with those guys and you know talking about vintage stuff and they were all just as stoked about it as i was 
And at the time, there was no, um, like, right now they have a flea, like there's the From Another Flea, which is where I sell most of my clothing now. Right. Um, but th- that wasn't around at the time. Like, From Another would actually just buy curated vintage pieces from different resellers. And, you know, I'd go in there once every month and I'd come out with a lot of cash and whatever. And I really loved that process. I thought that that was really, really cool. Um, and at the time, the person who runs From Another was like, his name's uh, Keaton. He was like, you know, Brian, do you want to do a pop-up? You know, do you want to do like a pop-up and like specialize in like your extra large and up stuff? And I'm like, that sounds great. Right. So we were kind of like the first um, like test subjects for what eventually became the flea, which is an an incredible spot now uh, on White Ave where we have all of our our gear 24 seven. So yeah, it was just, it was just cool. And like, that's, um, you know, it, it developed that into the point where I was just like, yeah, I, I just really specialize in extra large enough, but I don't really want to do much more than that. Like if I do see something in another aisle, that's like really sick, like a cool hockey jersey or something, I'll pick it up, but I don't spend too much time in there. And I just specifically focus on extra large. That's it. And I like that. It makes it easy for me. Yeah. It simplifies the, I mean, you could probably spend like hours, days, weeks in thrift yeah. stores without this well, like refining the process. Well, the nice thing is like a lot of the times, like I'll be in Spruce Grove or St. Albert or Sherwood Park visiting clients for my, my banking work. And in between or after a meeting, I'll just like pop into the VV and I'll just walk through for 15 minutes and I'll find a bunch of shit, you know? So I don't even really feel like I'm wasting a lot of time. Like I, I've got it down to a, quite a process now where I'm, I'm not trying to do everything. I just want to be f- specific. And it actually quite helps me in the retail space too, because all the other vendors that I, I share a space with at the flea, they do everything. They have all different sizes of everything, you know, so you go through their sections and it's, it's all different stuff, right? My stuff is all extra large and up. So naturally people who have been buying from me for a while, just know to come to my section if they're bigger right so it actually in, in turn like works out better for me I, I get rid of more stuff i can you know keep supplying them with big guy stuff it's great and then in turn i meet a lot of other big guys like me who are like man it's really cool that you could like find this double extra large like vintage boston celtics jersey that i've been looking for forever because like where am i going to find that you know like you might find it through me right because yeah. Yeah, I was thinking you're almost like a like a personal shopper for these people at this point. A little bit, a little bit. I just I don't want to get too much into that because that would be such a time suck. Like I like I said, I just like to keep it simple. You know, um, it, the service might turn into that at some point. I, I could see that because there is a little bit of a demand for that. But like I said, I have to kind of like prioritize my time too. And I, you know, my job at at um, at the bank is is for sure my like my my main focus so uh everything else kind of fits in where i can so is there like do you, are there any hobbies that you haven't pursued like is there anything you've thought that would be cool to try and then haven't uh, tried yet because you seem yeah. to like go for it you know what honestly like i've always this is I haven't never I don't even think I've ever mentioned this to anybody but my my girlfriend maybe but um I really want to learn how to play the piano 
like bad. And like, I've been procrastinating doing this for such a long time because I just don't really have the time to do it. But that's something I could see myself trying to do sometime in the next few years, you know, but that that's going to require, you know, me making the time for it. So we'll see if that happens. Do you have any experience with like keyboards or any of the like preliminary piano stuff? A little bit. Like I went to audio engineering school in Vancouver, like before I started up my label and whatnot, because, you know, I was just really interested in becoming a producer. I really wanted to just produce house music in particular. And um, so I went to the school and like you learn about music theory and like you kind of they never really taught us how to perform on a piano but like you know they taught you how to program a synthesizer and how to like use a sampler and like all those things use a keyboard interface to kind of like you know engage with the sounds right so i learned how to use those things but not trained classically to play it so i can kind of poke around on a keyboard and make cool stuff but i couldn't actually you know play from a you know, a written piece of music or something like that. Like I've never been able to do that. So um, that's kind of why I want to pursue that. Cause I just, I've, I've always, I always feel like, you know, maybe that would be a good thing to kind of train my brain to do. So. Yeah, I guess uh, that brings up a question. You're talking about like training your brain. So all these different things that you're doing, do you feel they all like kind of, like feed each other in a way like it's it like you've, you've got it down so they aren't like pulling from each other they're more like facilitating but they're yeah, so different of. but are there, are there things that you've come across like in banking that has kind of informed the way you like produce music or yeah kind of you know like the banking world is it's like it's a massive bureaucracy and everything has a procedure and a protocol and all this stuff so the standardization of business practices and processes has been like um ingrained into my brain since i was you know ever ever since i got into the industry um and that stuff is like I, i feel it's it's really important to have that lens when you're looking at things um because it it allows you to sort of create things and not just sort of have ideas it's like you make your ideas into like into something you know and so i don't know i I just think that yeah the banking stuff has really helped me kind of um push my mind to like new new ways of thinking a little bit and um yeah it's uh the stuff that i do there is, is just it's really really interesting too but that could be a whole new conversation because I could talk about that for hours and hours and hours. So, what? but yeah, like at, at the end of the day, like I, I do think that like, you know, my ability to, to DJ and to like read the crowd and to like choose and select interesting music and all that kind of stuff helps with banking because banking is actually quite sterile is not a fucking surprise. Right. Um, but to have a personality and to like, be unique and to like you know uh be artistic and like not just be this cog in the wheel which a lot of bankers are um really gives me an advantage actually you know because especially my clients they they know what i what i do with my life and how dynamic that stuff seems to be and they look at me like 
wow, you're not like a typical tie wearing schmuck. You know what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're actually a person who does cool shit, but you do really cool banking shit too. Like I, I kind of want to know you, you know what I mean? Like that, um, not, not, not know me, but like, I want to work with you. I'm interested in that. Like, it's, it's just something, there's just something there. Right. So, um, yeah, like I, I do feel like I didn't realize that when I first got in, because like I said, I was so, um, trying to learn a whole new language that it was, I didn't, I couldn't even see that. But like, as time has progressed, all of my extracurricular activities and business opportunities and entrepreneurial pursuits, like they absolutely help with the banking for sure. But then this, the like standardization and procedure and protocol based think mindset of a banker um, really helps me with all my artistic stuff because that stuff can be very like, uh, you know, all over the place, you know? So, but like I said, like, this is not, like, none of it's perfect either. I'm just, yeah, I pursue things that I just want to pursue too. So, and I wouldn't say any of this was actually ever thought out or calculated <laughs> it just kind of came to this you know and uh yeah it is what it is <clears throat> you, you still uh collect those station wagons oh like the no you know i actually sold my um my mercedes wagon that i had which was really 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 cool uh a couple of years ago just because it was costing too much in maintenance and whatnot i actually i ended up uh, importing that one from Japan many years ago. And it was like my dream car when I was a kid, um, a Mercedes E55 wagon, which is just the coolest car ever. But uh, we have a couple of Mercedes in our family, like some older ones that are out in Victoria at my parents' place. But yeah, I, personally, I just have a, an Acura now, which is great because it doesn't cost me any money to fix it. It just goes and it fits me, which is good. I, I thought you had a couple of those wagons. Yeah, yeah, we, I had one. We have, uh, well, I had, huh, so the cool one was um, a 2001 E55 AMG wagon, like silver, red leather interior, crazy V8, like fast as fuck, super cool car. And then I bought another silver E500 wagon that was like all-wheel drive, could drive it in the winter, was a beast right and um anybody who buys old mercedes will tell you that they're the most expensive cars in the world to fix and they're a pain in the ass but they're the best cars to drive so it's a real it's a tough one <laughs> but i had to i had to finally kind of like disband of the benzes because it was they were literally just costing me too much money to even drive right and the headache of just trying to coordinate fixing cars all the time was too much so now I'm a Japanese car owner and I love it. Just love it. And when did you make the switch? Uh, I made the switch probably two years ago when um, actually my co-host of Catch the Beat, Ian Ray, who is the guy who actually does Catch the Beat now, uh, he works at Wheaton Honda and he called me up one day. He's like, hey, Brian, remember when you were in here the other, a couple weeks ago and you said that uh, you're looking for a unique sedan? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I got one for you. I'm like, okay, well, what is it? And it it end, ended up actually being a really unique sedan. It's a <clears throat> it's called an Acura RLX, uh, super handling all wheel drive hybrid. And in China and Japan, it's called the Honda Legend. 
And the Honda Legend is the same car as the Acura Legend from back in the 90s. So, and they didn't, they don't sell Honda Legends in North America. There's just no market for them here, but it's the highest level of, you know, um, highest tech, uh, best quality Honda you can buy is the Honda Legend. So that's what the Acura RLX hybrid is, is that. So it's a pretty rare car and it's really, really cool. And what year is it? 2018. Acura. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah yeah it's really sweet and like i just love it all-wheel drive you know crazy super fast um uh, battery boost in the engine that's cool it's a cool car it doesn't cost a lot to fill it up it's luxurious it's pretty like under the radar you know it's not too flashy i love it what color is it it's like the kind of dark gray oh like yeah the- yeah, it's cool. And the, the the cool thing is like there's really none of them around. Like I, I think there's maybe one one other one in Edmonton and maybe 10 of them or 15 of them in the whole country. Like they're very very rare. How so, did it end up here? Apparently it was the guy who bought it was from I think he was from Victoria and he leased it and he defaulted on his lease payment so it just magically ended up in Edmonton. I don't know. Yeah. So I was the yeah, first. Well. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I was happy about it because cars for me are tough because I'm I'm six eight, so it's really hard for me to find something where my head doesn't touch the you know the roof liner or something. So this one is great. I feel comfortable and like I feel like a normal sized person in it, which is cool. <laughs> Were you uh, like always tall as a kid, or was it like later in your youth that you shot up? Um, yeah, I was pretty tall. Like if you look at, you know, class pictures from grade one, I was pretty much like double the size of everybody else. So yeah, I remember playing hockey as a kid, like my parents would have would get into arguments with like, you know, parents from other teams because they they, they didn't believe that I was as young as I was because I was so much bigger than everybody else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, That's pretty cool. funny, though. Yeah. It, it, and the thing is, like, I've always just been proportionally much bigger than everybody else so but i don't mind <laughs> yeah no it seems it's like never been a bad thing you've been able to spin it in your advantage yeah in yeah. many ways yeah for sure for sure so, so yeah. what, you you okay. have a booth at the flea are you you're yeah. at it like physically what a couple days a week or i don't i don't actually work? go I, I just go to stock the shelves for my section. Um, you know, they have other people that actually work there full time. So it's like a full on store. Like you go in, there's, I think, eight or 10 different vendors that have their own sections where they curate, you know, they pretty much sell whatever they, whatever they're trying to sell, mostly clothes. Um, there's a section now for like knickknacks and other things too. So I, like, I'm going to, be selling some old Game Boy Advance things and like just these other things that I've been collecting from the thrifts over the years. So uh, it's a really cool shop though. Uh, it's in the space that From Another was in. Like above um, Yanni's? Yeah, right above Yanni's. Yeah. So From Another has moved to beside Foosh on White Ave now. Yep. That's the main store. They sell all the hype sneakers and all the kind of like, you know, hype clothes and all that kind of stuff. And the flea is a separate thing where it's, strictly thrifted clothing curated by 
people like me and a few other vendors and the people from, from another actually work there too. So they have, like I said, they have full staff and um, it's great. It's just a great spot. And like, it's, it's been cool to kind of watch the progression of that over the last few years, like being there from the very beginning until now and seeing where it is and kind of how the community's really supported it too. Like there's, there's a lot of people who, who love to shop that way where they're, you know, they're supporting, um, in thrifted clothing, recycled clothing. And um, it's neat to see that community kind of working up here. It's really cool. Yeah, there there seems to be like a, a fair amount of it in a condensed area. Like there's three or four shops on that block. Yeah. Out, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, the, you know, there, there's a few reasons for that too. Like the stuff you find at the flea is unique. You know, you go into a mall chances are if you buy something, someone else is going to have it too, you know? Um, But you go into the flea, you know, a lot of the times, unless it's like a pair of jeans, like who cares, right? But if it's a t-shirt or a, you know, a a vintage sportswear piece or like a cool snapback or something like that, chances are nobody's ever, nobody's going to have that here, you know? So I think what's happening is like kids are getting really into the idea of having these unique pieces, right? Plus, like it being recycled is also quite appealing to people. Like, I don't think buying new is really like that. Like, there are still people who love that, but like there's 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 quite an appeal about buying something recycled, right? And the neat thing about buying buying recycled too is if you buy the right piece, you can wear it for two years, turn around and probably get the money you spent out of it on it. Like you can get like if if you spend sixty dollars on a t-shirt. Let's say it's got like a Mickey Mouse print, made in USA, single stitch, good quality tee, nice print. You could get that money out of it two years from now after actually wearing it. You know what I mean? Can you do that with like a $60 investment at Simon's? Probably not. Yeah, no, definitely not. Right? And like that to me is super interesting where like your clothing and your shoes and like your things become an asset. And like I think teaching people about what assets are and how to like manage your assets, whether it's stocks or clothes or shoes or records or whatever is like, is a really good thing to, to learn as, as a young person. Cause I'd rather learn that than get blindly caught up in rampant consumerism. Yeah. You know, but then, okay. Answer answer this if you can i i always hear like both sides of the argument people say vinyl is either a really good investment or a horrible investment as someone who knows about investments and vinyl what's your take on it well vinyl can be uh, a real slippery slope so there's infinite amounts of records out there that are worth nothing right there is a lot of records out there too that are very collectible as well. So it totally depends on like kind of what you're collecting and how you're collecting. Now, I personally wouldn't be collecting. I, I The only reason I ever collected records in the first place was just so that I could play them at the club, you know, or make mixtapes for myself, for my car, or whatever. Right. It was never for like, Oh, I'm going to buy this record because I think it's going to be valuable in the future. Right. You know, if you look at any of the records that I have, like they have handprints all over them. They're fucking, they, they've been like played at raves. They've been played at clubs. Like they're 
they're beaten up. Like they're, I use them, you know, so I don't even think there's any value in them whatsoever. And another thing about records too, is it's like, they're, they're hard. There it's a harder sell. Like you sell one record, you know, for 15 bucks, you got to go to the mail, the the post office to sell it or whatever. It's like, they're, they're, they're not a very liquid asset. It's a very illiquid asset, you know? And I, um, to me, that's not a, if, if you're, if your investments are illiquid, it can be, you can, it can pose a lot of problems when you need that investment for something else. Right. So, um, yeah, records are not a great one to be totally honest with you. I, I wouldn't personally invest in any records unless they're like, you know, you know, for sure that they're, they're valuable, you know, but like I have some friends who have huge record collections and I would imagine they, you know, would probably give away half of them if they really, if it really came down to it, just out of convenience, just so they don't have to see them anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. So yeah. And like clothing is the same thing too. Like you could, you could amass a huge collection of clothing and if you don't have any way to sell it efficiently, it just becomes a massive burden, you know? And like, I think that, you know, I would, I probably would have gotten burnt out from thrifting way sooner um just because you know if i didn't have like the flea to sell my stuff easily or like an easy way to do it like i couldn't do what some of the other um uh thrifters do where they do like the the weekly pop-ups or the markets or anything like that like jeez, i'd have to clone myself to be able to do that stuff you know that takes a lot yeah. of time you know so yeah in in a sense these things like if you can make an easy way to sell it then and go for it you know i would suggest making it easy to sell things if you can and records and clothes can potentially be very difficult to sell if you don't have the right avenues to do it were you uh like did you grow up with an interest in clothing and outfits and personal yeah 100 yeah like when i was in elementary school i was like the first kid <laughs> sounds so ridiculous but i was like the first kid to have a pair of jordans to have a pair of reeboks like and we're talking like in the 80s like when this shit was like first the thing you know and so like i've been into sneakers and sneaker culture before even sneakerheads were called sneakerheads really like I, I was just really interested in shoes and especially at that time um in the late 80s and early 90s the designs that were coming out with like from nike and reebok were just mind-blowing right so i was super fascinated in all that shit at that time and then you know in my early years of of uh, junior high school like i was obsessed with rap music like obsessed with rap music to the point where every source and xxl magazine that would hit my mac store i was their first person to buy it you know what i mean i knew about every single album i would go to a and b sound and buy every single freaking rap album that came out like deep 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 into it and this is like way before i got into house music and djing like i was obsessed with rap and so seeing all the like tommy hill figure and polo sport and like you know all those cool brands from back in the day all the jordans and you know nike stuff that was going on like that was my life when i was in junior high school so, you know, another reason why I do thrift and stuff like that is because I'm nostalgically, you know, treasure hunting for a lot of these things that I used to wear when I was a kid. But yeah. I still I still have that a lot of that style as, as now. Right. And um, I just I, I've always been into that stuff. Yeah. 
like for as long as I can remember. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you, you love like clothing and you're talking a lot about like 90s stuff and stuff that you would have had when you were a child. But you yeah. must have to like wear a lot of suits in your line of work too. So are you also <laughs> into that type of attire? No, no, I am absolutely not. And like anybody who knows me in that in that world can tell you that like I I'm like the anti suit guy. I don't I don't like to dress up and play the part of a businessman. I don't want to do that. Like I I I see too many people in my industry and too many people that wear the suit that are absolutely the worst business people ever that are total dolts that I like, I feel as if I wear a suit sometimes I'm a, so like people will just think that I'm that type of person too. And I don't want that. I just want to be normal. And I also like, I don't think that, you know, doing good portfolio management or banking work for someone is like, I don't think you need to be wearing a suit to do that. You need to be competent. Yes. Right. <laughs> but do you need to look the part? I think that that's a very old school mindset. And I like, truly, I have been pressing against that for the moment, since the moment I got into the industry, I'm like, you know, I don't work, like I won't wear casual clothes. Like sometimes I will, but like not, not, not a lot, but like, you know, I've proven to myself and to the people I work with that like my clients, they want me to show up as as me. They don't want me to show up as Brian, the slick back hair fucking banker guy. Yeah, because that isn't me. That isn't me. I love I love the work I do, but do I want to be part of the culture? Fuck no. But uh, are there a certain type of people that like wouldn't allow someone to handle their account if they? Yeah, for were? sure. But for sure. But the the nice thing is like. If if you're going to look, if, if you're not going to be able to like really dive into what I can provide you and listen to what I, what I have to say based on a visual judgment on me, then I don't want to work with you in the first place. Right. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel as though like what I do in that sense is like, it's special enough and I help enough people that like, I don't, I don't need to prove that to you by some facade. Like I, you know, if you, if you were, like it, it is a good litmus test for me to see who I'm getting into bed with too. You know, like, do I want to really be, have that person as a client that I have to maybe talk to, you know, regularly? Probably not. You know what I mean? I don't, there's, there's enough other advisors out there that will happily help you. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like with me, I just want to make sure that like on the banking side, that the people that are my clients, which I, call my community of investors of people who I like work with, like, do, who are these people? Like, I want them to be friends. I want them to be family members. I want them to be great. Like, I want them to be part of the community. I don't want to feel like I'm, I'm servicing some whale just because he has millions and millions of dollars. Like, no, I don't do but that. Was that more difficult? Like when you were first getting into the industry? Yeah, it was for sure. For sure. Cause it's taken it like, you know, it's taken me and my team and my, my, my family, like it's taken a long time to develop a message that is unique and different than everybody else's. And, you know, at, at first, you know, getting into the industry was really scary for me, man. It really was, you know, and I had to go to like training in Toronto and wear the suit. And like, you know, I, they, they put me up in like a crazy hotel for like 
like almost two months, you know, in Toronto and just to get trained and to like learn about the culture and stuff. And man, a lot of it I didn't like, you know, a lot of it I didn't like, but you know, there are parts of it where I feel like, you know, I, I really do like what I do now and I have the autonomy to help people in the way that I want. And I don't have to like, you know, pander to like what the people above me want me to do. You know, it's kind of nice. So, <clears throat> but a lot of people that are in my industry have to kind of like play that role. They feel like they can't have autonomy because they want to play within the rules of what the bank is telling them to do. Right. But right. there's a lot of politics behind all this stuff too, but <clears throat> I try as best, my best to just maintain my individuality and who I am. And like, I don't necessarily want to put on a different hat when I come home. I just want to be who I am, you know? Right. And in, in the industry of banking, it's very difficult for some people to separate those two things. Very difficult. But like I said, I'm just who I am and I do good work and people like me for who I am. And that goes much farther than me trying to build a business through looking like a guy in a suit, you know? Yeah. If that makes sense. No, no, of course. Was it a, ever an issue? Like when you were coming out of DJing, yeah. trying to get into banking, did people like feel that was a, a weird like fusion? Kind of. Well, the DJing was always, it was always a hobby. So it was never anything like I was like, you know, using DJing or, or, you know, making an exorbitant amount of money so I could just focus on DJing, you know, right. it was always like kind of a side gig. So, you know, it was like a thing I felt like when I first got into the industry, like that was like my hobby. Like some guys play softball, some guys play on hockey teams. Like I just happened to collect records and DJ, you know, and right. a lot of my peers were kind of like, Oh, you're like a raver guy, man. And then like, you know, so you must do a lot of drugs and like, you, you must be fucked up all the time. Hey? And I'm like, no, like if you actually know me, I don't do any of that shit. <laughs> like yeah. I, I smoke weed, but like, you know, like most people do, I don't drink alcohol. I don't do drugs or anything like that. So like, I truly always, always just did it for the music and like just enjoying the music. Right. So there was a little bit of that where you know, I think people, maybe even still today, a lot of my peers might think that I am that person. But, you know, if, if someone isn't really willing to take the time to really find out who I am, then I don't give a fuck. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? no, like, that's a great way to look at it. Well, I, just, I think it's funny, like now, you know, for me to, to have like a DJ slash investment banker slash all the <laughs> things you do, that's super cool now but no. i'm thinking like back in the day people were so close-minded in subcultures like i even for sure i remember like growing up skateboarding and it, unless you were like the main filmer that all your friends knew you could like get clips out of this person it was almost yeah. frowned upon to like be a photographer and a skater and now it's like you have to kind of do both but back then like people would have felt a certain type of way about it it's just i'm so glad things have changed but yeah. it just it popped into my head that like i don't even know if you can sell out anymore these days but i wonder if people would have like 
throwing that word around if you were a DJ turn. Oh yeah, for sure. But that's also why, like, you know, for the many, many years, I would never tell people in the club, oh yeah, this is what I do with my job. Yeah. Not that I wasn't like, I was embarrassed about it, but I couldn't, like, I couldn't meet people in the club or at raves and just like, get to that point a conversation i never really wanted to you know what i mean yeah because then then also also on the flip like people in the younger generations you know they will hear that i'm a banker and all of a sudden they'll be like oh my god you're one of those guys and i'm like fuck well i tried to be the most anti-banker banker of all bankers <laughs> yeah you know what i mean and i hope that in the future kind of what i'm doing with my business and how I'm running my business really like shows people that you don't have to do it in the traditional way to like do it right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I just, yeah, I I really hope that that happens. But like I said, like I'm fighting up an uphill battle that um, will always be an uphill battle in my opinion, you know? Yeah, no, a very like noble fight. To take yeah. one. Like I uh I assume that would be a difficult one to to prove yourself through all that, but it, it sounds like it's working out great. I yeah, mean, it's, it is, yeah. Like I, I have no complaints and like you know, the business has really gotten to a point where I'm very proud of it too. And like we can I'd love to chat about you with that with this stuff, like the banking stuff, like on a on a on another level, because I think you you would be pretty interested in it, not in terms of becoming a client or whatever, but like that's up to you. But like I just think that you would uh, you take away a, a lot from kind of that stuff too, because it's it's just very interesting. Yeah, um, no, no, it does. In like, I mean, yeah, not not being a banker or necessarily a client, but just knowing how kind of the analytics of that stuff and how people like react to it that that type of stuff for sure interests me so yeah there's just there's so much stuff that goes on behind the scenes that like most people don't even really realize and it's not like fraudulent shit or bad stuff it's just you know it's the bank really preys off of people and their lack of financial literacy now we try to empower people to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it. You know what I mean? Right. And um, I'm talking on a very broad, broad level here, but like what we do with my team is we try to like give you everything on the other side of the fence that the banks try to hide from you. And um, yeah, it's taken a long time to develop a business that works properly in this space and, we are outliers in that way too. And I'm proud of that, you know, so, <clears throat> so but that's, you, that's, you, sorry, sorry you, you mentioned uh, it's your family, right? So the year, like your dad is a banker, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how did no. he feel about you bringing like your own kind of like spin on banking to the firm? You know what? That was that's that's a great question because at first, you know, he was like his partner at the time, like back in the late two thousands, um, was uh, retiring, and he said to me, like I was working in Vancouver, just finished going to school there, and like you know starting a record label and all this stuff, 
and he called me up. He's like, Brian, my, my assistant or my, my partner is leaving. And I'd, I'd really like you to, you know, do something meaningful. With your life. <laughs> right. And I like knowing my dad, like I wasn't very offended by that. Cause like, I yeah, just, that's kind of his sense of humor, but yeah, he, uh, he just was like, come back to Edmonton. I'll train you properly. I want you to work with me. I know this is probably going to be something you don't want to do, but like, just hear me out and come, come work with me. Right. And like, I really like my dad and I think, you know, he's an amazingly innovative thinker. Um, and so like, I, I couldn't really say no to the opportunity. Right. And uh, that's kind of how it, how it developed. And he convinced me to move back from Vancouver, which at the time was a good idea because I was pretty deeply in debt from going to school and just living in that environment for a long time. Yeah. Um, even though I was working full time and really grinding it out on, you know, doing whatever job I was doing at the time, like I, it was impossible to get ahead, you know, and I felt, yeah, I think I could probably move back to Edmonton and, you know, I think it might be a good place for me to be again, you know? And so that's kind of how it happened. And when I came back here, um, you know, my dad was, you know, he never told me to stop DJing or whatever. And then in that time, like he actually gave me the flexibility and the time to um, continue pursuing things like heart to heart, like, heart to heart happened here in Edmonton. It didn't happen in Vancouver. So the whole time I was working here, I was still developing heart to heart, doing my radio show, all that stuff. And like, I was never told not to do that. So, you know, I think if you asked my dad at the time, like, was that, a, you know, did you really want Brian to do that stuff? He probably would have said, I would have loved him to stop doing it at that time. But as time has gone on, he really sees, has seen that the, the benefits of me having these extracurricular activities that I'm really passionate about because it, it helps when I'm just talking to people about who I am, you know, and like my, my, my job in my business is all relationship based. So if you don't like me, then you're probably not going to want to work with me. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and so I think at first he was like, Oh, Brian, you're going to scare people off by talking about raves, <laughs> which kind of makes sense. Right. But in all actuality, it turned out the more I talked about that stuff, the more interested people were. And it it didn't matter if it was a 90-year-old ex-lawyer or like a 50-year-old pipe layer. Like who who doesn't matter? Like those I like my clients are people from all walks of life. Um, everybody just just loved me for being who I was, I guess. You know what I mean? Or, you know, I'm sure there's people who don't like me. That's absolutely possible but like you know it, it never backfired let's say that it only actually ever like helped so yeah initially it was maybe hard to see that but over time it definitely d turned into more of a, a uh, an asset and a benefit for sure it, and it did take my dad a little bit of time to figure that out but yeah now he'd be like oh yeah brian's really you know he does lots of cool stuff <laughs> yeah you know, and he's proud of that too. So good when that type of thing works itself out, though. It's yeah, it, like it, it's great. You never had to waver on it, like nope. getting your interest, and then got to like kind of pursue it all and excel yeah. at it in the end. So yeah. yeah, and the thing is, like, just being me. Like, I if I'm really into something, I just I really just put a lot of time and effort and thought into it. Yeah, and um, I just kind of get obsessed with things. So. That's kind of, yeah, the things I've put my time into, I'm, I'm really happy I have, you know, and in hindsight, I wouldn't have 
probably done it any differently. So, yeah, no, that that's great. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, I'm looking at the time here. I think oh, I think we got a good episode. Is there anything else you want to? No, man. Touch man. On? Honestly, dude, I've I've been really enjoying uh, the stuff you've been doing with other people too. Like, uh, I'm gonna take the time to actually listen to a lot of the other episodes because, yeah, I think um, some of just the way you're asking questions to people and some of the information you're you're able to kind of drum up is just fascinating, man. So I I, I think uh, this is been really fun i've been really really appreciated that you reached out to me to do this too because uh uh it made, it made me feel good when you when you said hey you want to come on my podcast i'm like oh shit cool uh, i appreciate that I, yeah i should have actually kind of thanked you and give a bit of a precursor to all this but i think you've been referenced by a, a fair amount of people kind of in the realm of DJing that I've had on here or just people I've talked to kind of in my day to day, everyone's like, you got to talk to Brian, like find out about her art. So yeah, like I, I, I had been like... meaning to reach out and then I am always like, I'm so spacey. I mean, they're really on it or not at all. So like that day I reached out to you was the day I, I had to secure a couple new guests. And now I'll probably be lazy for another couple of weeks and then need more. And I always go through waves, but yeah, I'm the no, same way, man. I can relate. I'm highly recommended. And oh, thanks. Uh, thank you for teaching me a lot about all this stuff. That the other good thing with all these guests that I'm fortunate enough to talk to, they just like teach me a bunch of cool stuff that I didn't know before the episode and now yeah. talk for an hour and a half. I know I'd love to know more about everything you do, but I know yeah, the sure. minimum about stuff and now yeah. I can get a story from someone else. Yeah, man. Honestly, like whenever you want to chat, I'm always down, dude. 100%. Yeah. And like, I, well, like I said, you're doing some really cool stuff, man. So I'm big time supporter. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything. And no worries, uh, man. We'll, we'll talk soon, I'm sure. Sounds good, Wes. I appreciate the call, buddy. Yeah, thank you. No worries, man. We'll talk soon. See ya. Okay, see ya. <laughs>